Please join me in prayer. God, a Redeemer, you sent your Son to be born of a woman and to die for us on a cross by your Holy Spirit. Illumine our lives with your word. So as the scripture is read and proclaimed this day, we may be reconciled and one holy to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 9. The Gospel of the Lord. When you pray, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. I can still remember the day that I, I met a real bank robber. I didn't know that about him at the time, though. Um, years ago, he was known to local law enforcement as the bearded bandit. But if you met him, you'd find out that greed was not what tempted him. You see, he described his root problem as a tremendous appetite for something else, something that led this married man into late-night trips into his city's red-light district and rendezvous with high-priced escorts. What started as a, a lustful temptation soon grew into something very different for him. Soon he his desire for the drug of choice would exceed his ability to pay for it. So he one day rented a car, put on a disguise, drove it to a bank, and then robbed the bank. Then he used the money to support the habit that his day job could no longer support. But then he did it again, and again, and again. In fact, over the span of 16 months, he stole nearly $50,000 from 14 different banks. But on the day that he robbed his 13th and the 14th bank, a witness caught the license plate of his rented getaway car, which soon led it to find it parked outside of a church the bank robber's church, where he worked as the pastor. One of his shocked neighbors told the reporters, this is unbelievable. I've known him for 14 years, and I've never seen a hint of such a thing. He always seemed like a good, nice man. His tears streamed down the face of his bewildered wife. The words spoken at his arraignment signaled not only the end of his freedom, but the death of his career. You see, the quiet model husband, the, the caring family man that so many knew him to be had gone farther than he ever expected to go, and yet down the same path that so many have gone down before, the same path Jesus calls his followers to pray against, lead us not into temptation. How does it happen for a guy like the bearded bandit? The same way it actually happens for any of us, even that the specifics are a little bit different. It's a process we find spelled out in the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it starts on page 1,881. This is God's word. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So what do we see in here? What we see is James unpacking what Jesus is asking us to pray about, and it begins with teaching us something about temptation. 
If you look there in verse 13, in every translation that you come up with in English, it never talks about what happens if someone is tempted, but it says when someone's tempted. That's because in the Gospels, Jesus teaches that temptations to sin are bound to come your way. In a letter that uh, Paul wrote to the Christians living in the city of Corinth, he writes, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In a sense, temptation is both inevitable and universal. James is talking about something that we all experience, something relevant to every single one of us. But he's also helping to clarify what Jesus is not asking us to pray about. You see, when Jesus tells us to pray to God, lead us not into temptation, it's not because God is in the business of tempting people in some way. See, verse 13, James goes on to write that no one should say God is tempting me because God never tempts anyone. It would be contrary to his own nature. So if temptation is something that we all experience, and yet not something that God does to us, why is Jesus asking us to pray to God, lead us not into temptation? Well, fortunately, it's not the only time that Jesus has used those words into temptation when talking with his disciples. Uh, When Jesus is about to be arrested, his disciples hear the same words. And there's a good reason why. Physically, that night before the crucifixion and his and his arrest, they're tired. They're wiped out. It's been a long night. Their eyes barely can stay awake, not even able to stay awake to pray with their friend for an hour. So he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And yet soon their spirits would also be tested. You see, spiritually, they're about to be shaken when the one that they are absolutely certain is their Messiah is arrested and then beaten and then executed. You can just imagine the shock When Judas, one of their own, comes leading an angry mob armed with sharp metallic swords and blunt wooden clubs, you can imagine the crushing feeling just hours later when the one whom all of your religious hopes and dreams rests upon, the one who just washed your feet with his own hands, now has his hands and feet nailed to a cross. Emotionally, you can imagine the fear that they'd face when they saw what would become of Jesus wondering what's going to become of us if we don't distance ourselves from him. And so it's no wonder that beforehand Jesus says to them in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation to do what you know you shouldn't or to not do what you know that you should. Because before that night was over, everyone that Jesus was talking to either betrayed him, abandoned him, or would lie about even knowing him right after trying to kill one of the people trying to capture him. All of things far from what they ever imagined they would be capable of doing. But what about us? How often are we in the same boat as these disciples, physically, spiritually, emotionally drained? Whether from high-demand jobs or long hours or financial stress. Uh, Relentless kids whose energy never stops, even when ours does. Confusion, fear, anxiety. The reality is that hardships uh, that we experience make us more vulnerable to temptations as well. When we're feeling hurt and tempted to repay evil with evil. It happens when we're feeling lonely and we just want something to numb the pain and are willing to consider things that we shouldn't. It happens when we're still finding more month at the end of our money and decide that the only solution is to do some uh, uh, creative accounting, you might say. So what happens when you realize we're not living our best life now, and so as a result, we consider a moral shortcut to try to get there. 
whatever the situation, whatever the hardship, when we're aware of our vulnerability, Jesus' words teach us to pray that the temptation does not take us in, that we do not give in to it. And yet the rest of the time, when we're not aware of present intense temptations, well, Jesus' words are for those times as well. He's essentially asking his followers to pray to be spared from, to be delivered from difficult situations that would tempt you to sin beyond what's ordinary, that would make it harder to not fall, that could lead to disaster. Some of you know that ever since I was a kid, I've been really into airplanes. One of my favorite trips was to see a hangar where they build the biggest ones. One thing I also got into was learning why do planes crash? What leads to those disasters? Usually when a plane has an incident, it's not just because of one thing, but a perfect storm of multiple things. It's, it's not just that there was a faulty instrument or bad weather or someone distracted in the cockpit. It's usually a couple of those things and then a couple more on top of it. Because one little thing by itself doesn't necessarily lead to a disaster, but you get a bunch of little ones together and it's just as dangerous as your wings falling off. Seeking to keep passengers and crews safe is often why some of your flights are delayed because of what they call mechanical issues. One little thing that may not lead to disaster but makes disaster a lot more likely to happen. It's that same desire for safety that that leads pilots when they see a literal storm to fly around it, if possible, even though it's going to add more flight time to the schedule. In a similar way, praying, lead us not into temptation is asking God to do the same thing that any good pilot would do, steer you away from situations that could lead to disaster. Lead us not into temptation, but rather away from temptations. And when temptations come, let them not take us in. Let those storms not take us down. That's what Jesus is asking us to pray. But here James isn't just teaching something about our temptations. He's actually trying to teach us something about ourselves you see, in verse, 9, verse 14, James teaches us that temptations start not as an external problem, but as an internal problem. It starts when our own evil desires, by which we're dragged away and enticed. In the original language, they would have recognized those words as, as hunting and fishing metaphors, meaning to be dragged away from safety to where you can be caught, to be lured, to be enticed like a fish, to be caught with bait. And the reason why we can be lured away from something isn't because of something just outside of us, but actually, first of all, because of something inside of us. Um, try this sometime if you, if you don't believe me. For those that have pets, next time that you want to draw your pet in the kitchen, try pointing, I don't know, try pointing one of these at them. They're really strong at drawing things, so why not try it on Fluffy? It's like, here, kitty, 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 kitty. I'm going to guess this thing won't actually work for you. But instead, when the magnet doesn't work, try opening up some fancy feast, some dog chow, some kibble, some food, and then start pouring that into a bowl. Here's my guess. Within seconds from hearing the pop of the can opening, the smell of that distant aroma of fish and and chicken, the sight of that bowl being filled, it won't take more than a few seconds from that cat that only seems good at ignoring you and your funny-shaped horseshoe just to come sprinting into the kitchen. Now, on the other hand, if you happen to drop a box of metal paper clips in the middle of your kitchen floor, putting a can of puppy chow in the middle and opening it isn't really going to do much for those paper clips. But if you take that little magnet that you've been pointing at Fluffy and use it on the paper clips, suddenly everything comes drawn to it. And the closer they get, the faster they want to come. You see, the reason why one is or is not drawn to another 
isn't just because of the nature of the one drawing it, but the nature of the one being drawn. In the same way, the reason why we're drawn, why we're enticed, why we're tempted to sin is because of something about our own nature, something inside of us. And it's found in that phrase, evil desires. In the original Greek, it's actually just one word, um, epithumia, a word that means to over-desire something. You see, it's not that you want something that's necessarily bad in itself, but that you want it in a bad way. It's not that the object of your desire is necessarily evil in itself, but you so over-desire, your desires are so out of proportion that you find that you're willing to do what's evil in order to get it. So we're dragged away, we're enticed, we're lured, we're hooked like a fish that's been taken the bait and finds itself drawn to somewhere that it never had imagined. Verse 15 is where James describes what follows next in biological terms. Our epithumia, our over-desires, conceive and give birth to sin. And then sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth in itself to death. In the words of Steve Farrar, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll lead to keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you're willing to pay. One moment you're enticed by that tasty morsel, the bait that hides the hook inside. The next thing you know, you're mounted on a fisherman's wall. It's what happened to that pastor turned into the beard bandit when his own epithumia, his tremendous insatiable appetite for something else, turned his shining reputation and his promising career into a mere sporting trophy mounted on temptation's wall. The big fish that did not get away. The same reality that we're all prone to in one way or another. So Jesus teaches us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. But here's where i got to be honest with you. Before I realized I was going to be preaching on this passage, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I've prayed just this part of the Lord's Prayer by itself. If you're like me, and if that's really how temptation works in, in anyone's life, what keeps us from praying this way? What keeps us from being our sincere prayer? Well, we get a clue in verse 16 where James writes, Do not be deceived. As Chris Lundgaard put in his book, uh, The Enemy Within, the essence of temptation is deceit. To be tempted and to be deceived are essentially the same things. And the temptation, the deception at work here that undermines the prayer that Jesus teaches us is the temptation to believe that we don't really need God's help either because we've overestimated our, our own abilities or we've underestimated the power of our temptations. And to put it another way, I, I found um, some research about two weeks ago um, from Northwestern University in Chicago done by uh, Dr. Lauren Nordgren, who ran a series of experiments um, that placed college students in a bunch of different tempting situations. So here's what they found. They found that we often display what's called a restraint bias, in other words, uh, we tend to overestimate how much self-control we actually have against temptation when we're not in the heat of the moment. This restraint bias causes us to think that we can actually handle more temptations than we actually can. Dr. Norgren noted that people are not good at, at anticipating the power of their urges. And he warned that those who are the most confident in their self-control are also the most likely to give in to temptation. The reality is we think we can handle more temptation than we actually can, and our self-confidence is not part of the solution. It's actually part of our problem. So Dr. Nordgren concludes, the key is simply to avoid any situation where vices and other weaknesses thrive, and most importantly, for individuals to keep a humble view of their willpower. 
Or as James put it, do not be deceived. You see, you can tell yourself, you know, I'm going to be fine. That last time, just a fluke. It's no big deal. I'm not going to go that far. I'm sure I can have just one more bite. That'll be it. Just one more impulse buy and I'll be done. Just one more glance. Just, just one more flirtatious smile. Just one more drink. Just one more time. All the while deceived by the objects of our temptation while being self-deceived ourselves. While it's true that not all things tempt all people in the same way, if you know that something is a temptation for you, both ancient scriptures and modern science agree, do not be deceived. Run. It's what we find in 2 Timothy 2.22, where it tells us to flee the epithumia. Same words, the evil desires that begin the path of temptation rather than simply entertain them, rather than playing with them. That's why a lot of people in this room, myself included, have a program called Covenant Eyes installed in our computers and our phones. It's, it's why some of pe- people I know realize they just can't have alcohol in their, more, their home anymore or why they always end up choosing grape juice in the communion line. So I some that I know have had to cut up their credit cards or cancel their cards or delete a social media account when they realize they just can't resist getting into an argument that they know is going to turn them into a monster. It's why a former mentor of mine said that he couldn't go into a video store by himself anymore. Think of the situations that tempt you like a minefield. If you want a visual, we got a picture for you. This is the sign you need to be imagining in your mind. Now, granted, If you go walking through a minefield, it doesn't guarantee you're going to step on anything that's going to hurt you. In fact, most places that you can step beyond one of these signs actually does not have a mine underneath it. But nobody in their right mind would want to be led into one or feel like it's a fun place to go playing. You can avoid them. If you can avoid it at all, you go around it. Because sin is like a landmine. It not only hurts the one who walks into it, but also works those nearest to them and closest to them. This morning, how many of us in this room are still feeling the pain of the shrapnel from sins committed so many years ago by yourself or by others? Trusting in our willpower to get you safely through situations that you know will tempt you is like trusting your intuition to walk past one of those signs thinking you're just going to be fine. See, if we believe our willpower is sufficient, we won't flee. And we won't feel the need to pray, lead us not into temptation. See, this prayer of desperation isn't going to be in our lips until it's first on our hearts. Thank you. Yet for some of us, though, the problem isn't something like having too high a view of ourselves, but actually having too low a view of our God. In verse 17, James goes on to write, Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. But the deception of temptation is to get you to believe that the good and the perfect gifts can actually be found elsewhere. That his gifts, his way, and his timing are actually not what's best for you. The deception of temptation is convincing you that the minefield is just a playground and your heavenly Father is just a cosmic killjoy to get you to believe in that moment, that moment of temporary insanity, that God really isn't good, that he doesn't really have your best interest in mind that it's not worth fleeing temptations in one direction when your over-desires are pulling you in the other. Maybe for some of us in the midst of it all, we might remember verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, telling us that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. Instead of believing those words, we assume, I'm going to give in anyway, so just why fight it? And when resisting temptation feels like suffering, 
we'll think it's not actually worth it. Maybe we'll find ourselves like St. Augustine, who in his confessions wrote that he would rather have his evil desires satisfied than extinguished. See, when we realize that we're never tempted beyond what we can bear, that God does provide a way out, we start to see the only reason that we give in to temptation, the only reason that we sin, is because we want to sin. I saw a picture of this years ago when I was watching an episode of the show The Good Wife. By the end of the second season, desire had already conceived between two of the main characters, Alicia, the good wife, and her boss, Will. And yet, there always seemed to be something that kept it from becoming an actual affair between them. But one night, while they were celebrating a courtroom win in a local hotel bar, they began thinking about uh, why it had never gone any further, why desire had never gone to actual sin acted out. But this night, it seemed, the timing was no longer a barrier for them. And the more they thought about the opportunity before them in that hotel lobby, beneath all those hotel rooms, the closer they got to crossing that line. But as they started to walk down that path, step by step, they found each step of the way an obstacle in their way. Things that could have kept desire from conceiving and being born in sin if they wanted those obstacles to stop them. First, the person at the front desk that could book them a room would just ignore them. Then, while Alicia is standing there thinking that no one noticed what's going on, she gets a wink from the piano player, letting her know that they're not as inconspicuous as they'd like to think. Finally, when Will gets the attention of the clerk, she says, I'm sorry, we have all, the, all of our rooms are rented out, um, big convention in town. But our over-desires are persistent. So Will keeps on asking, and she keeps on saying no. He keeps asking. She keeps saying no until he finally says, is there really absolutely nothing left? She says, well, there is the presidential suite, which runs um, $7,800 a night. About the time she expects to see them head out the door, instead out comes the American Express card. They wait for one elevator because the other is full. They see a woman and her daughter walking out, and the woman is saying to her daughter, no, no, stop that. When they walk in the elevator, they realize why, because they turn and they see the lights for all the different floors are lit up like a Christmas tree. Like she, she went up and pushed every single button she could. 20 times between the ground floor and their room, they're going to have the opportunity when the door opens and the elevator stops to abort the mission, to walk away, to say this is not the way we should go. And yet every single time, the door closes again, and they get one floor closer to disaster. Finally, they get to that top floor, and the card key doesn't work to open the door. You're like, come on, can't you read the signs? And I just wanted to just cry out, stop it! Can't you see all the opportunities that you had to get away from this situation? What is wrong with you? And yet, I realized, you know, just because desirous conceived doesn't have to be born in sin, they were given countless ways out of their situation, obvious ones, but I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about me? How many times has God given me a way out of the things that I've been tempted to give into, and I just ignored it? Someone calls at just the right time, and I don't see it as God redirecting me not recognizing the obstacles in my path are actually his gracious way out, his reminder that I don't have to give in. Maybe one reason why we don't is summed up in the words spoken by Will. His, his prayer, as you might say, 
when the card won't open that door. Come on, please God, just one hour. Almost like he's saying, it feels so right, how can it be wrong? What kind of loving God would not let us have just one hour? See, if we're prone to think too lowly of a God who would say no to our over-desires, too highly of ourselves, thinking our willpower can win out, and if we really only sin because we actually want to sin, how does the prayer Jesus teaches us become our authentic prayer? How is it possible? Well, look again at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And one of those gifts is what we heard about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God's faithfulness to give us a way out. You see, apart from that promise, when willpower fails, we'll assume that the only way forward is just to give in. But as another pastor put it, God never expected us to win with willpower. He expected us to win with his power. As Paul writes to that same Corinthian church later on, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Years ago, I was living in Las Vegas uh, when a, a friend of mine was struggling with alcohol abuse. It was basically his drug of choice, what he would use to self-medicate tremendous feelings of loneliness. The funny thing is, by day, he was a life-of-the-party type of personality. But if you wanted to find him by night, you had to go to a park and find him under a tree in the shadows by himself, where he just finished off half a bottle of liquor, tossing it in the trash can, just like the night before, and the night before that, and the night before that. The pattern didn't stop until one day he nearly keeled over, he nearly collapsed in a church when referred pain from an overworked liver brought him literally to his knees. As time passed, he got married, he started a family, and and things started looking up. But then one night when his family was away, he started feeling lonely again. So he decided he could just have another drink. And then another drink. And then another. And, well, I think you get the idea. He thought it was in his past. He, he thought he was better. He, he thought he was stronger now. While later he realized he was about to be, find himself in the same vulnerable situation again. But he knew himself. He knew what happened last time. He knew that nothing had changed inside of him, but he also knew the words of James 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And so he made a decision. That week he confessed to a group of trusted friends that that he had a problem. He shared where he was weak and confessed his need for their help. So the next time that his family went away, one of those friends went out to dinner with him so that he wouldn't have to be alone that first night. The next day when he got off of work, a friend sent him a text. When he got off work the next day, someone else sent him a text. In the middle of it, somebody called him asking, hey, do you have this tool? Like, I need some help working on my car. He says, sure. He didn't have the tool, but he hung up. He went to the tool store and bought it and went to go be with his friend, seeing this was God's way out, his excuse to not have to be alone that night. In the meantime, he had friends praying for him because they now knew how to pray for him. And as a result, he knew he had people to call on, even if someone didn't call on him first. Soon his family was back in town. Crisis avoided. His situation wasn't as hopeless as it felt before, because God had provided a way out for him. But it began by him acknowledging his own weakness, first to himself, then to God, then to others. You see, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. 
And what his story shows us is that the ways out that God offers aren't just ways of getting through tempting moments or seasons, but ways of avoiding them in the first place. You see, we don't have to live lives of isolation, being unknown. We don't have to wait until we're feeling temptation before we can flee it. We don't have to wait to be tempted by the lie before learning the truth. A number of seasons in my life, I found that I needed to memorize scriptures and meditate on what they said to remind me that that God is faithful, that he has not abandoned me, that I don't have to give into temptations, that every good and perfect gift is really from him, not what's on the other side of the minefield, that I need to let others into my life, that I'm not meant to grow in isolation, but rather in community with others. I need to know that I need to cry out to God like this, that this prayer needs to be the prayer of my own heart. And if it's going to become the sincere prayer of our hearts, then we need to look first and foremost to the one who teaches us to pray it, to Jesus Christ, who himself is the good and perfect gift, who comes from above, from the Father. You see, in Jesus we find somebody who knows what it's like to endure temptation. In Matthew 4, we read that after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, Jesus knew full well what it meant to be tempted when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're feeling weak. He knows what it's like to be asked to prove yourself through means that would be contrary to God's ways. He knows what it's like to have to choose between faithfulness on one hand and relief from suffering on the other. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. As it says in Hebrews 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are tempted. You see, he not only knows suffering that comes with resisting temptation, Jesus actually knows it better than any of us do. Because eventually at some point, we stop feeling the tension of resisting temptations because we give in. We don't take the way out. We stop resisting. Hebrews 12.4 tells us, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but Jesus has. You see, Jesus alone knows what it's like to live his whole life without yielding to temptation even once, resisting temptation to the very end, even unto death on that cross. He did so because he knew that we could not. He did it for you. He did it for me. He was faithful where we were not and offered his life and his obedience as our substitute for any who would put their faith in him alone. Because we need that. Because none of us can stand before God justified by our own good record. And when we actually see that, when we believe that, when we embrace the gift of it by faith, when we experience that grace, Scriptures tell us in Titus 2.12 that it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and our worldly passions. And we see the love that God showed us in Christ. It shows us that his commands are not burdensome, but an expression of his love. It shows that it's not a cosmic killjoy up there. He's your dad who loves you, who knows what's best for you. Receiving the good and the perfect gift of God's own son is what enables us to say no to temptation by teaching us both the love of God and the ugliness of our sin. That sin was that we're tempted by was so horrible that Jesus had to die for it, but also that you are so loved that Jesus willingly died for it. So that seeing both together in harmony would lead us to not want to yield to temptation, to not want to grieve the heart that loved you to the end. See, it's only the grace of God offered in Christ that can change our hearts 
So the prayer that Jesus teaches actually becomes the cry of our hearts. Grace that has as its center Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus didn't just endure the suffering that came with his obedience, but he did so in light of something better on the other side. To paraphrase the words of Thomas Chalmers, the only way to undermine the over-desires that would lead us into temptation is for them to be replaced by a greater desire for something better. We've got a picture for you. If you've been to the St. Louis Zoo, you probably recognize this uh, exhibit. Years ago, a woman that I once met uh, took a trip to the zoo just about a mile that way uh, with friends of hers and with their little kids. Now, back then, this was the new big attraction. It's called Big Cat Country, where they take all the lions and the tigers out of their individual cages and put them into this like wide, large enclosure and build ramps above it so you can watch them from above. While they were going up a ramp with the kids uh, to see this exhibit, uh, a blanket got tangled up in one of the stroller wheels. So she, she knelt down to help untangle the blanket while her boys, about three and five at the time, went on ahead. When she looked up, she discovered that the, the boys had innocently walked right through a child's side gap in that fencing somewhere up there, and as a result had now climbed to the top of the rocks inside of the lion's pen, about 20 feet above the lion's. Now, what they were promised in advance was, you're going to get a view of the lions from above. And that's exactly what they were getting, but not in the way that it was intended. They called out, hey, mom, we can see them. With no concept of the danger that they were in. She had to think fast. If she screamed at them, which every muscle in her body wanted to do, she could easily startle the boys who were just one slip away from disaster. On the other hand, she was too big to make it through the small opening in the fence to go grab them. So she did the only thing that she could. She knelt down. She spread out her arms and said, Boys, come get a hug. You see, the allure of those big cats was great, but the desire to be embraced by the one who loves them the most was greater. They came running, running for the love that saved them from a danger greater than they would have ever imagined or understood you see like those boys we too can underestimate the danger that we're in when temptations lure us closer and closer to the edge closer to the things that would devour us so to call us back from danger god too stooped down taking on flesh in the person of jesus christ spreading his arms wide on the cross to show us his love to show us a grace greater than our sin, knowing the temptations would come, that our over-desires would lead us astray, he gave us a better object of desire. He gave us himself. In the midst of temptation, he invites you to, just like those little boys, to run. Not just away from temptation, but to him. To feel his embrace, that you too may find joy in the arms of the one who loved you to the end. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning as people who need prayer. We need you. Father, we confess that many of us in so many different ways have overestimated our own power, our own willpower. In many ways, in a sense, every time that we sin, we have underestimated you, thinking you are not good, you are not loving, that your ways are not best, 
Father, we have hurt ourselves and we have hurt others in the process. Father, as we come to this table, we pray that you would meet us here and remind us that seeing all of our sins, all of our temptations, you didn't turn away from us. You didn't turn against us. You turned towards us, coming to us in love so that we in turn could run to you when temptation strikes. Meet us here at this table. Amen.